Before the kids go, I want all the children in the room to stand up for a moment. Stand up, stand up. All over the place. Stand up. There you go. Um, so what we just sang, I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. Let me tell you kids something for a moment, okay? I don't know inside the mind of your parents or whoever brought you to church this morning, but I suspect something about each and every one of you. They probably are bringing you to church because here's what they realize. They realize that God has put them, meaning your parents, in your life for a season to help you get along, to figure stuff out. Any of you know how to drive yet? Not yet, right? Do you know how to use credit cards? Maybe. But that's because you guys are tech. But they're going to teach you about all kinds of stuff, right? But what they want ultimately for you is they want you to turn to God to be your help. Is that true, parents? That's right. So that's why they're bringing you to church. That's why we come to church as adults, is we need to be reminded we can't handle this life. Now, before you guys go, as just an expression of God's heart for children, the rest of the church, you're going to sit there. You don't get to clap. The rest of the church is going to clap loudly because we love kids at Neighborhood Bible Church. You ready, church? One, two, three. All right. Kids, you are out of here. Make your exit to that clapping. Man, we love you guys. It is so awesome to have you guys. And uh, man, we're so appreciative. We have just an amazing group of people uh, that serve children here at this church. And um, if you haven't thanked someone lately for that, find someone and thank them. Proverbs 12 says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. I've been in prayer for weeks about this series, and maybe particularly about this particular Sunday, that this morning, the words that are spoken, the scriptures that have been chosen to be read, the people that will be sharing would be a good word to your soul. That they would make you glad. You know, we don't have <clears throat> maybe the best language for our sorrow. Uh, a lot of times people who are speaking about how they're doing are somewhat illiterate to their own emotions. They're emotionally illiterate. It doesn't mean that they're dumb. It doesn't mean that they're not capable. It means that just like someone who's illiterate in reading English words, they can't read their emotions and they don't really know what's going on. And sometimes I think we fall in the trap of using the same few words of how we're doing. See if this rings a bell at all. You go up and you ask someone how they're doing. And here's a really common phrase that kind of in the last decade has, has come in. I'm good. You ever said I'm good and that's like the furthest thing from the truth? I'm good could just mean, please don't ask any further. I'm good could mean, I actually really would love for you to sit down and really hear me and sit with me and, and talk with me. I need help. And I'm good could mean I'm illiterate as to how to acknowledge my feelings and what's really going on. Maybe I'm good is after a moment where you are actually quite embarrassed and hurt and someone says, hey, are you okay back there? I'm good. And it's kind of a shutdown trigger word. Here's another one. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm really bummed. Well, you, you, you are bummed maybe, but, but what's, what's underneath that? Maybe it's that you're severely lonely. Maybe it's loneliness mixed with disappointment. And when you get those two together, it, it just sends you into a funk. And what you say is, I'm bummed. I'm not really here to teach a class on how to express your emotions. That's not really the point of this morning. But what I want to do is this. I want to invite you to be a little bit introspective. Maybe there is sorrow in your heart, and maybe you've been answering people, I'm good, I'm bummed. Maybe there is some deep sorrow that you've muted with things like busyness or even good things like ministry in your family and you've tried to kind of hit the, the, the mute button on the sorrows of your soul because it's a little too frightening to go there and deal with it and talk about it and think about it. Proverbs 14 says this, Even in laughter, the heart may ache, 
and the end of joy may be grief. A lot of times I think we just want to entertain ourselves, distract ourselves away from the funk that can kind of wash over our souls. We've been in this series called Turbulence. And uh, how many of you as a flyer, we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but how many of you as a flyer, if you're flying along and it's a smooth flight, and all of a sudden there's that rumble, how many of you get sort of a wave of just immediate adrenaline, panic, whatever that is? Let me see your hands, okay? Some people are just calm as can be, right? And that bumps and they just whatever. I remember as a kid, I thought that was the most exciting thing. It felt like an earthquake in the sky, right? I'm from San Jose, so I know about earthquakes. And, and uh, so it just felt kind of thrilling. Um, but once you kind of understand what could happen, turbulence can sometimes throw you into this, like, you know, gripping fear We've been looking at some of these things in life that, that we're going through life and then all of a sudden rejection, right? All of a sudden loneliness, brokenness, fear, physical pain, sorrow. And maybe we are <clears throat> as white-knuckled as a person on a flight that just feels totally out of control begins to imagine all the things that could go wrong on this giant, massive, you know, tube of metal that we're in way many thousands of feet in the air. And in life, we can kind of get that way. I want you to know that some in this room right now are living through some of the saddest days of their life up to this point. Every Sunday that we gather as a church family, know that. Know that there are people around you that right now, today, this is the, the most sorrowful, painful, turbulent season of their entire life. Now, please hear no condemnation in this, okay? <clears throat> but when they show up at church and someone comes to them and kind of glibly just says, Hey, how are you doing? They're trained to say, I'm good. How are you? immediately shifting it back to someone else and not really engaging in things. One of the reasons we have community groups at this church is it is a striving point. It is a pleading to say, can we get past the few minutes before and after church and really take the mask off and risk being known with one another? Because that's where the, the, the gifts of the body actually come out. It doesn't come out a lot in this. There's, there's some gifts happening in the setting like this, but so many more get applied when we're in smaller groups. We can sit, we can begin to build relationships and trust and talk through things. Here are just some of the categories. See if some of these ring true for you or someone you know. Families that just seem to be teetering. They seem strong at one point, and right now they're just teetering and spiraling out of control. Unrealized dreams. Unfulfilled desires. Spiritual alienation. Relationships that are on the ropes, career confusion, physical ailments that confound the doctors. On and on it goes. Next week we're going to be looking at, at wronged. Just what do we do when we're wronged by someone? When someone else's sin impacts our life, how do we handle that? You know, that causes deep sorrow. Our own sin causes deep sorrow. <clears throat> Every night uh, for the last six months, some of you know this, but um, we have been serving our daughter who is expressing deep, profound sorrow every night. And I just took note of it this last night, just so I could tell you, but this last night, it was 1.58 a.m. when the sorrow came rushing out in the form of screaming, crying, and whatnot. When you have a child biologically, <clears throat> there's just sorrow. We're, we're born into a broken, cursed world, and so there's sorrow that's there. But when you're taking in children who, are, you know, who have backgrounds that, that we don't know what went on the first couple years of life, there's a different level of sorrow that's there. Six months, and I almost can't think of a night that this hasn't been true. And it got me thinking about this. Some of you in this room are the loved ones caring for someone in chronic, severe sorrow, and it's draining. Can we just be okay with saying it's draining? It's really tiring, isn't it? 
My prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that I would fall on my knees, recognize my need for God all the more, and continue walking. And that's my plan. That's what I continue to do. And for those of you who are loving and ministering and walking side by side with people who are in severe sorrow, lift your eyes. God is with you in this. It's a holy assignment that you've been given. Press on. Most of what's being talked about here this morning is directed directly to those who are, who are the sorrowful. But many have come around you and are serving in that way. When you look at the cup of human suffering, have you seen the big gulps that are ridiculously big? Please harass John Giordano next time you see him. Because he carries around, I don't know, it must be like three gallons of soda or whatever's in that thing. And I'm like, you know, is the cup holder on top of your roof up here? Like, how, you know, how do you secure that puppy? But I thought about the, 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 the cup that Jesus said, you know, to his disciples, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they were like, yeah, we can drink it. They couldn't drink it. The cup of human suffering is massive. While I was preparing for this sermon, I was at a Starbucks near Bass Pro Shop. And it was a couple of weeks ago now, and I was on the phone, and I was talking with someone from our church about this topic. And after I got done, I was sitting there, I was continuing to work, and an older gentleman came up to me. And he said, excuse me, he said, my name's Phil. I said, hi, Phil, how you doing? And he said, um, I, sorry, I couldn't help but overhear you. He said, you know, so much of what I hear just in everyday conversation is just, F this and F that, just cursing. And it's really depressing. So usually I get up and I leave. He goes, I couldn't help but overhear your phone conversation, and I want you to know how it impacted me and encouraged me today. And then all of a sudden, with tears in his eyes, he said, I lost my wife two years ago. I said, Phil, I'm really, really sorry to hear that. And he said, um, he said I'm, I'm running to God every day. I'm leaning on him completely. Is that the right thing to be doing? I said, Phil, there's nowhere else you can run. I said, you keep doing that. You're doing the right thing. And then we kind of parted ways. And it just dawned on me. I mean, just sitting at Starbucks, someone overhearing they're in pain, they're suffering, they're going through their own turbulence, and they're asking this question, God, are you faithful? And in response, they're seeking, how can I be faithful? And that's been the format of our study in this series so far. The cup of human suffering is everywhere. All this material affluence that we have masks it, doesn't it? I mean, when someone says, I'm good, and you're like, yeah, you look, you look okay, cool. If you see a beggar in the streets of Ethiopia, you might not think that they're good. You might think maybe they have some need. If you're on the streets of San Francisco at 9.30 p.m. and you see sort of the real surroundings, you might go, yeah, they're not good. But sometimes we can put on the mask pretty well just because of our affluence. Proverbs 18, 14 says this, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? I think the Bible lays us all bare. I don't know about you, but you can get to feeling really bad about yourself, read the Bible, and kind of have it confirmed. <laughs> yep, that, that was pretty spot on. You can also start getting to feel pretty good about yourself. Man, I, I, I'm not the guy cussing at Starbucks, and, and I try to, to, to give way to people, and I'm doing this and that. And then you open the Bible, and you read the Bible, and guess what? You're exposed. You're, you're laid bare to say, wow, we are a sorry lot. And I include myself at the front of that line. We are a sorry lot, and there is lots to be sorrowful about because we live in a sin-scarred world. <clears throat> the man of sorrows is one of the things we learned about Jesus a few weeks ago, or just reminded ourselves. He's called the man of sorrows. He was acquainted. He was, he was acquainted with grief. 
And maybe when you see the man of sorrows up there on the cross, arms outstretched, bloodied, maybe you see yourself, and maybe the cry of Jesus has become your cry of late. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe that's you this morning. The great news that I have to offer every single Sunday up here is this. It's not what we can do to, for, for God. It's what God has done for us and is continuing to do for us. It's a present tense reality of what God is doing for us. God is faithful in sorrow. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start there. <clears throat> We already looked a few weeks ago, when we talked about brokenness, that Jesus mentioned the word pruning in John 15. Not a lot of cutesy plaques on your walls at home or sold at the Christian bookstores about pruning, right? Here I am, Lord, prune me. We just don't like that. That sounds painful. We also looked at the sifting that Jesus allows of Peter. Pruning and sifting are painful words. Even if we know it's good for us, it's a hard prayer to pray. God, if I need pruning such that my fruitful life would be even more fruitful, here I am. Prune away. I trust you. Man, that's a tough prayer. What we know is this, that God is up to something grand, and our comfort and uninterrupted happiness in this life are not at the top of his list as to how he accomplishes that. Amen? Think about it. Uninterrupted happiness and comfort. Wouldn't we want that? Maybe that tops your prayer list. I always pray for a safe drive somewhere. I'm always thankful when I arrive safely. We want comfort. We want uninterrupted happiness. We know that's not the path that we have in this life. I'm going to show you two examples of how God is faithful in sorrow. I want you to know, too, in each of these topics, there are so many places to go. There are so many things to point to. How is God faithful in sorrow? Open up your Bible and start to read. It won't be long before you get to a section you realize that's God being faithful in sorrow. It's everywhere. It's all through the book. But let me show you two really clear, uh, concise examples. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 6. Let me just read this. Actually, I should probably get there too. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 says this. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. And um, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to give you a little bit of teaching of what the Bible says about how God is faithful in our sorrow. After that, I want to give you a few thoughts as to how we can remain faithful to God in our sorrow. And sprinkled throughout this, you're going to hear from a few people in our congregation who have experienced some deep grief. Paul is thrilled at the report he was getting. Here's the scenario. The Christians at Corinth were turning away to false teachers. Understand this, there will always be people pummeling you with false ideas, with lies, with fleshly realities, and they will be leading your heart and mind astray unless you are guarded. We just sang this, my foes are many, but I will stand my ground. You are constantly going to be led away 
by false teachers if you aren't in the book, if you aren't in prayer, if you aren't on guard with things. Paul is rejoicing because the people at Corinth had returned to Paul as a teacher. And he couldn't care less about Paul's name if we know Paul's character. It's that that vicariously, they really returned to the gospel. By returning to Paul as a teacher, by suddenly realizing we're eager and and longing for your teaching, Paul, it's it's that we long for the gospel. We've returned to the truth. And it's the joy of every parent. It's the joy of every pastor when wandering sheep return to the fold of God. Because it's here that they're safe. It's here that they're blessed. It's here that they can blossom into all that God has desired for them. And then we just read it. Paul had inflicted sorrow and sadness. And it had, and it had its desired intent. Again, this is not hard for parents. It's harder for kids. Until you're a parent, it's a little bit difficult to see this. But if you are a coach this morning, if you are a good boss this morning, if you are a godly loving parent this morning, you understand the joy and the mixed reaction that Paul has. I wanted to inflict pain on you, but I didn't want to inflict pain on you because I knew it would cause you sadness and sorrow. But, but I did want to do it because I want you to return to the truth. You've probably heard it like, like I did growing up at, as a discipline was about to start. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Anyone else hear that? Right? Mark Lowry does this sketch. He says, well, if I'm the one being punished and you're going to get hurt more, let's swap this thing. Let me beat on you for a while. As a parent, don't you get that, though? Man, I mean, you hear this in Paul. I, I, I wanted to inflict grief on you, but I really didn't want to. But I'm so glad I did because it had its desired effect. It led to repentance. He lays out something that we're not going to take time to go into, but it's worth your study. Charlie Brown used to say, good grief, right? The truth is, there's good grief and there's bad grief. There's there's godly grief and there's worldly grief. The godly grief leads to repentance. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, and we've probably tasted of both of those cups. There's a difference. I want you to look at verse 11 with me, and I want you to see the results of godly grief. It's not just repentance, that one word. It's a whole host of things. Verse 11, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And he goes on to talk about things. If you you read the first few verses of this chapter, the context is this. He's longing for them to press on in holiness. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. You open your heart, your eyes are open, you get it. Wow, Jesus fulfills the righteousness of God. This thing that I've been trying to produce in myself, I've realized, if I'm, if I'm honest, I can't possibly do it. I get it. It's a gift from God. I receive that. I'm, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm living a new life. I'm walking the new life. I'm excited about life. And pretty soon that wanes, and pretty soon I start to veer off into my old paths, or I start to get lost in some false teaching, and I'm, I'm believing other gospels, and I'm suddenly starting to mix that with works, or I'm suddenly starting to doubt the fact that Jesus really has anything to do with my life today, and all these different things, and then you're pulled back into reality. And God snaps your attention and says, that's right, this is what I clung to. I wandered, and now I'm back. Maybe this is your story a little bit. I mean, this is the Israelite story, isn't it? It's, it's the cycle of sin that we kind of find ourselves in. What Paul's saying is this. You, you believed, Corinthians, you wandered away. You made a giant mess of yourself. Read, read the Corinthians someday. Talk about a tangled web of a mess. You just look at it, and you start to feel decent about your church after a while. 
you're like, wow, we're not so terrible. I mean, people aren't getting drunk at communion. They're not fighting on the way to the Lord's table. You know, we're not suing each other. I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy stuff going on, not to mention all the explicit sexual deviance happening. That's because God yanks us out of a life of deadness and confusion and redeems us, but that process of sanctification is a process, right? And so it's one step forward and three steps back sometimes. And all of a sudden, there's a produce. There's things that are stirred up, and Paul's calling them to be holy in every way. And part of that means pruning and sifting. Part of that means Paul writing a very difficult letter for him because he knows it's going to inflict um, pain on them. And I'm sure it was bathed in tears saying, God, please have these hard words have the desired effect. And this passage is saying, praise God, there's a, there's a good grief that can come on you, a right response of guilt over sin. And when your brain starts to veer towards condemnation, you proclaim Romans 8.1, you say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's two questions for you to ponder at community group this week. What are you sorry about? What makes you grieve deeply? Is it the loss of status, the loss of position, the loss of favor, in a, as it were, from God? Because you're doing things that are blocking relationship? Or is it the loss of favor from this world? Now, there's a whole bunch of other categories in that. But it's good to ponder, why am I sad? Is it my name that keeps getting trampled and that bums me out to no end? Or is it God's name that keeps getting trampled and I can't deal with that? Do you see the difference? Am I sorry about things that are really temporal and not going to last that long? Am I sorry about things that are eternal and I'm confused about? Big difference. So ponder that. And then secondly, what is the fruit of your sorrow? If the fruit of your sorrow is repentance, greater dependence on God, further intimacy with the Lord, brokenness, compassion for those who are, who are hurting, praise God. I think that's a good kind of grief. I think those are great kinds of produce from it. But if the results are regret and selfishness and pride and a whole host of other things that are damaging and cancerous to your soul, maybe your sorrow is a worldly sorrow and not a godly sorrow. Look at what you're sorry about and look at what it produces in you. Turn over to John chapter 11. That's Paul teaching us about God's faithfulness and sorrow. Now I want to look to Jesus. In a very famous story, both in and out of the church, it's when he raises Lazarus from the dead. <clears throat> and there are two very surprising things about this passage. There's probably a lot of surprising things, but two that I want to highlight. Let me pick it up in uh, John chapter 11, starting in verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Pause. Here's at least one surprising thing about this account. Jesus is glad for grief. Jesus is glad that he wasn't there to prevent Lazarus from dying. As he began to get sick, imagine this. This beloved family of Jesus, Mary and Martha tending to Lazarus. Send word to Jesus. We've got to get him here. Our brother is sick. And Jesus telling the disciples, <coughs> I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. 
The Greek word for glad here is rejoice. It could just as easily read this. I rejoice for your sake that I wasn't there. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever lost a beloved family member? Worse yet, have you ever been at the bedside watching them take their final breath, watching their body physically deteriorate, and feeling utterly helpless? Have you been there? Now can you imagine being in that place and realizing, wow, Jesus was glad that this got inflicted, that this happened. What is the purpose of letting this great sorrow be there? Look at what it says. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. What is the great purpose in being glad that this sorrow could happen? It's belief. Belief means life. Whoever believes in me will never die. I'm actually glad this went on because it's going to result in your eternal happiness. Again, think like a parent. Why do we discipline our kids? It's because we want them to taste. When you cross authority's line, when the line's been drawn here and you go here knowingly and willingly, I want that to hurt a little bit. You know why? Because you're going to cross a line someday as an adult, and if you don't get it now and taste it in a small measure, you're going to taste a bitterness later on that's going to result in things that you go, why didn't my parents teach me this? Why didn't they just hold to things so I could learn incrementally that I shouldn't cross these lines? What is the purpose of letting this great sorrow in? It's so that there's a little bit of sorrow now so that there would be belief and so that there would be no sorrow for eternity. That's why Jesus rejoices that this goes on. You know, life lessons can be painful. Jesus is doing something even greater here. He's doing an eternal life lesson. And it's such a phenomenal object lesson that we're still talking about it. I mean, raising someone from the dead, right? Kind of lodges in the mind. If you were there, I would imagine that would never be forgotten the rest of your life. But here we have it on eyewitness account. The disciple John thinking back and writing about this event that went on, and it's been recorded for us. Jesus is driving home an eternal life lesson. There's something about death, right? I mean, the flesh clings to and claws for control and utterly fears death because it's so outside the realm of us being able to say, oh, I've got this. We live in the valley of, oh, I've got this. Right? Filled with entrepreneurs. They can do anything they want. We got this. We can handle this. Let's throw ingenuity at it, money at it, power at it, intelligence at it. But then it comes to death. And we just go, man, that utterly makes the flesh crawl away in terror. Because we're powerless over it. When I read this story, it reminds me of this. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of our study in, in 1 Thessalonians. That Jesus sees death for what it is. It's an enemy to be sure, but it's, it's asleep. When he says that Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him, remember our study in 1 Thessalonians? That genuinely is what's happening. It's as conquerable for Jesus... God in a body, to go over to a dead person and wake them, call them out of a cave, right? He sees death for what it is. It's surprising that Jesus is glad about the grieving, but it's also surprising that he weeps. Look at verse 28 with me. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Again, put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment, you guys. Your brother's just died. You sent word to him in time. He stayed there how many more days? Two more days after he got word. You ever face a difficult conversation you don't really know what you're going to say? Imagine that you've sent for Jesus. 
the one that you've seen open the eyes of the blind, the one that you're confident could have raised your brother, healed your brother, spared this great tragedy, and now it's too late, now he's here? What are you going to say to Jesus? Hey, Jesus is calling for you. Come, come on, Martha says. And I just, I just imagine what's kind of rolling through her mind is she's going to go and talk to the Lord. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him these words, Lord, if you had been here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then one of the shortest verses in the Bible, and so powerful, Jesus wept. So the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. It's surprising that Jesus was joyful that this grieving happened. It's also surprising that he wept. Why did Jesus weep? Tell me what logic dictates. What, what is Jesus about to do? Let's walk this through. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Is Lazarus in a fortress that is impenetrable and he can't get in? No. He's sleeping. Jesus knows this. Logic doesn't say weep. Logic would coldly lay out, calm down, it's going to be all right, walk over and do the deal. Why does Jesus weep? As I really thought about this, I thought about this idea that, you know, Jesus isn't interested in just a transaction for your soul. Hey, you're dead in your sins. You need to be declared righteous. Boom, goes the judge's gavel. I've got this. I've got it covered. You're free. That's a transaction, right? Jesus isn't just after a transaction for your soul. Jesus is after relationship. When you see the people you love grieving, does it grieve your own heart? Does it trouble you deeply? Yes. So if you've imagined Jesus in your mind as not someone who's pursuing relationship with you, if you haven't experienced the intimate relationship, then maybe Jesus wants joyful grief to come over you so you'll be driven to that place. This death of their brother allows Jesus to do what Jesus did when he was born here. He enters into our pain. Compassion is the word to come alongside and suffer with. Jesus comes alongside humanity, all of humanity, by coming and suffering alongside us. But he comes to very specific people. He enters into their pain and he suffers along with them. It also points out to us that death is a real enemy. Just because we know logically some things about death, please don't come and glibly just offer those things and kind of barf that out on, on weeping people. Hey, time out. We know this is not for eternity. Probably not the best thing to say right there. Jesus comes in and he just weeps with his sister. It's just such a beautiful picture of the relationship that Jesus offers. If you want to know how to be around grieving people, read, read about Jesus. And what you see is this. Love comes to pain and weeps. Love just shows up and begins to weep with those who weep. God is faithful in sorrow, friends. I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your sorrow is. But let me offer a few ideas. God may be faithfully disciplining you. Ben talked on, about this last week. Some of our failure, perhaps much of our failure... It's just a function of our own sin. It's pridefully going after things. It's asking God to bless our plans instead of seek his will for our life. And, and it's just a discipline. Your sorrow today may be that God is faithfully disciplining you, proving you to be a legitimate child in the family. Rejoice in that. 
Rejoice in that. God disciplining his children proves your sonship, proves that you're in the family. Your sorrow may be something different altogether. It may be that God has chosen a very difficult assignment for you, but sees you as the right person to fulfill that assignment. Would you want to be Daniel in the Old Testament? Would you want to be Joseph, Job, Mary and Martha, who wept and anguished over the death of their brother? Maybe when the story's over, right? I mean, for all of those, think about it. When we see far enough down the story, maybe you'd want to be them. But in the moment, would you want to be Mary here? Doesn't Mary voice for us all something that I think every person who's ever lived has pondered? Does my creator care? Do you care about me, Jesus? I think we equate the care of Jesus in the same way that maybe Mary equated it, and that is that he's there with us, yanking us out of this discomfort immediately. God has something different in mind. God may be choosing you as a capable person for a sorrow that reveals the glory of God that can be done no other way. And so he's allowing it to happen. God may be faithfully leaving you in sorrow to wake you up to the life that you're living. That goes along with discipline. Maybe you're in a sorrow and you're begging for the sorrow to end and God's allowing you to remain in this difficult place. Sorrow has a way of sort of burning up shallowness in our life. We begin to think about some things in some different ways. And because he's God, he reserves the right for it to be none of what I just said. God is doing things that are above our understanding. I've grown in my life to trust him in that. The things I just said are easier to say than to live. It's a whole lot easier to preach this message than just to go out and live it, isn't it? I want to shift now to ways you can be faithful in your sorrow. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. I have a unique job in that a part of my calling that God has allowed me to do is to go to the birth of people having babies, and I get to go and visit them and pray over them and, and hold brand new life, and my wife is eternally jealous for that. I snap pictures of her, and once in a while she gets to go with me, but usually she's holding our babies, so she doesn't get to come. I also get called into hospital rooms when babies are stillborn, and I also get called into places where death is imminent, and I get to perform worship services called memorial services for people who have passed away, and I get to do weddings, and I get to be invited into a lot of different pretty um, emotionally charged places in life. And when I read this in Ecclesiastes, I'll say this. If I had 20 weddings to do this coming year and 20 funerals to do this year, my flesh would pick the weddings every time. <laughs> It's a joyful occasion. But when I stop and really ponder and think, I get the truth of this passage, that it's better to go to the house of mourning. One of the things that walking alongside sorrowful, hurting people has done is it gets you in tune just with other people's hurts and sorrow and pain. There's a certain, the more you do it, the more you're able to accomplish it. If you're in deep mourning this morning, uh, let me just say this, that you being in our midst, you, you hold a special place in our community. I know you didn't pick this. I know that you didn't sign up for this assignment. I'm sure you would gladly hand the badge off to someone else. But if you're deeply sorrowful this morning, you remind the rest of the community that this life is temporary. You are looking for your heavenly reward, aren't you? You're longing for your heavenly body. You're longing for your reuniting with the Savior. You're longing for all these tears of sorrow to be turned to tears of joy. 
and you won't stop talking about it, praying about it, longing for it, because you're in anguish here. You hold a prophetic, important place in our community. We actually need that voice, lest we get sort of, you know, shiny things glistening, led away from what's really happening in this life. <clears throat> I want to invite John up uh, right now. I've, I've asked John to share. Um, you know what I forgot to do? Um, Les, can you grab the, the handheld mic from the back, please? Come on up, John. Um, probably, uh, I, I can't really think of, I was thinking about this. I, I don't know that there's another person for sure in the last decade that I have shed more tears with and shed more tears over than with John and over some of the things John has gone through. And um, John, has been, uh, John has been gracious to, um, to, share, uh, to share his story with many, many people. He just gets lots of opportunities. I asked him to put some things in writing, and I want to let John just, um, just share his heart with you. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is John Garza. I am a husband, a father of nine, a grandfather of 12. But most importantly, I am a follower of Christ. I have been attending Neighborhood Bible Church since our very first service, November the 6th, 2006. As many of you know, we lost our oldest of nine on May the 5th, 2008. Marie was hospitalized on a Saturday, May the 3rd, a bone marrow biopsy was ordered Sunday, May the 4th, and the results came back 8 a.m. Monday morning, indicating she had a very aggressive type of leukemia. On that Monday at 5 p.m. in the evening, Marie's spleen ruptured, and she was called home at the young age of 29. This was a very difficult time for our entire family, losing Marie so unexpectedly. Soon after that, we lost Uncle Tony, then Thea Carmen, my father-in-law, Grandpa David, died one year after Marie on May the 9th, on, in May 2009. Three months after Gramps, we lost my father, Grandpa Elias. And two months later, we lost my mother-in-law, Grandma Mary. All this happened within a 16-month span of Marie being called home. These are only a few of the memorials I have attended within the past eight years. I honestly believe the good Lord has something in plan for me in dealing with pain and sorrow, not only in my life, but in the life of others. He brought me to NBC a year and a half in advance to prepare me for calling Marie home. I honestly believe he revealed himself to me one day at Marie's gravesite. My father gave up his gravesite with, with, with my mother so Marie could be laid at rest with her grandmother. I would go there regularly, I would go there daily, and I started to notice more grave sites in the immediate area. <clears throat> With time, I noticed the grass starting to grow on those recently dug graves. I was wondering why Marie's grave had not been growing any grass. I started to aerate the soil, add fertilizer and seed, and watered regularly. The grass still refused to grow. After some time, I realized my mistake. I immediately fell to the ground and sobbed uncontrollably. At that moment, I realized I was trying to do something as simple as grow grass on my own. I turned to my Heavenly Father and asked him for forgiveness for not coming to him for this small request. You created the heavens and the earth, so how easily would it be to grow grass? I felt a sense of peace but more importantly, a sense of forgiveness. The next day I returned and new blades of grass were growing where there was none before. Two days later, the grass was noticeably taller and greener than any grass in the immediate area. That day I learned a valuable lesson, that God is always with you. All you have to do is seek him. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. As I mentioned earlier, I have been blessed to be at the bedside of many, many others being called home since the May 5th, 2008. I have prayed with family members and friends, shared the good news with them, and have also been there 
as they took their last breath. I have held warm hands as they turned cold. I remain faithful to him as he has brought me through the pain and sorrow of losing my firstborn. I read his books, I read his book, which Marie left me. I study the passages Marie had highlighted and feel joy knowing these words meant so much to her. I will continue to turn to God through thick and thin. My day ends in prayer on my knees, reciting the Lord's Prayer and asking for forgiveness of my shortcomings. I pray for those in need by name, my family and friends, and for situations that come up periodically. When I wake, the first words out of my mouth are, Good morning, Heavenly Father. I then go to my knees in prayer, giving thanks for the blessings he has given me. I have a calendar in my kitchen that I mark daily. Every morning, I write on today's date, God is good, and make a slash on it. When I return home, I am ready to call it a night. I slash the date the other way, making an X. A reminder to me that God is good. He is good all the time, no matter the situation. I would like to make it clear to everyone that my life is far from being perfect. I would like to make it clear to everyone that my life is far from being perfect without hurt, sorrow, and pain. My marriage, my relationship with my children, grandchildren, friends, co-workers is nowhere near perfect. I still have my shortcomings and disagreements, but I do my best to leave it all in God's hands. On my mother and Marie's grave, grave headstone is engraved with what I, to me, says it all. Matthew 19, 26. With God, all things are possible. Let's thank John. I want to read for you um, some words that Nancy Henderson wrote down for me. I, I asked John and I asked Nancy, how has God been faithful in your sorrow and how have you been faithful in sorrow? And the emphasis this entire series when it says faithful in the storm is on God's faithfulness. But it's not that we just let go and let God and have no part to play. We cooperate with God in what he's doing. And I want to tell you with John, people have asked him time and time again, why haven't you questioned God and run from him? And his answer is the same every time. Why on earth in my hour of need would I run from my rock? It's one thing to kind of say that when, when all is sunshine and roses. It's another thing when you say that at a memorial service. It's another thing when you've just shared the heart-wrenching story of losing a child. To say, why would I go anywhere else? Why in my hour of need? That's when I need him the most. And John, you've lived that, brother. It's been such a... Such an encouragement. I've obviously asked permission to... In answering the question, how has God been faithful in your sorrow? He writes this, God provided me with an amazing, godly husband. He knows and exhibits the true meaning of love towards me in, ways, in the ways that he treats me. We've been married for 28 years, and many of those years have been laced with severe depression. He has faithfully stood by me. Most men would have left. God has provided me with Christian counselors to bring me back to the truth of who he is. He has used these counselors to help me understand the meaning of spiritual warfare and the part it has played in my depression. God has given me a compassion toward others with depression. God saved me from killing myself. Thoughts of suicide during my depressions were rampant. If there were a gun in my home, I am convinced I would have used it. During the last several years of my depression, I would gravely deny God's existence, his love, his grace. And I was convinced at times that Satan was my best friend. God, God did not give up on me. 
He kept using various people to bring me back to the truth. She then writes this, You asked me how I remained faithful to God during these times. To be honest, I was not coming to church to glorify God. I came out of habit. I did not want to be in church. Most of the times I would sleep during the sermon. Sorry, Dave. Somehow God got me to church because most of the time I did not want to be there. I want you to know that instead of hiring a full-time admin, we have two very faithful servants in this church who weekly come and put in a full day's work to be our admins for Ben and I. He comes every Thursday. She says this, volunteering in the office was a God thing. It gave me some structure when I didn't have any. For the most part, I don't believe I was faithful to God during these times, and yet he was and is faithful to me. Very quickly, I want to have you write down a few things of how to be faithful to God in sorrow if you're taking notes. Number one is continue to follow in your grief. You didn't follow God perfectly when you weren't in grief. You won't follow God perfectly while you're in grief, but keep following. Secondly, keep showing up. Please don't let sadness and grief lead you to the sin of isolation. We are called into community. One of the things that the enemy does is not only plant in the minds of believers falsehoods, but he longs for you to be isolated. Think about a prey going after a weak one. What does that prey, what does that hunter want to do? And he wants to isolate that wounded calf and pick it off. Keep showing up. You're allowed to sleep through the sermons. I'll still be your friends. Me and he still talk. It's a, little, it's a little tense and awkward at times, but we still do. Number three, we already talked about this, but evaluate why you are sad. There's good grief and there's bad grief. Are you sad about God things or are you sad about self things? Remember Jonah? Jonah was sad that wicked people were returning to God. How about prodigals? Prodigals are sorry all the way up until their dinner date with pigs, right? Before it leads to repentance, prodigals are just sorry for the way things are turning out. Conversely, Paul anguished over rebellious countrymen toward the gospel such that he said, if I could give my own life for you in my own salvation, I would do that on behalf of you. And he anguished over the church. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, the people who killed the prophets. God keeps trying to tell you and you kill them. Number four is to lean on and offer grace like never before. Here's the truth. You've always been desperately in need of grace. Every day of your life, you've been desperately in need of grace. Your pain has just brought it. It's been like a relief map. It's brought it to the surface, and now you realize your need, your desperate need for God's grace every single day. So lean in and receive that. Secondly, offer grace like never before. If you've ever witnessed or participated in rubbernecking, right, where an accident happens and there's no real reason for the traffic, right, everyone's just slowing down to kind of get a good look, it proves over and over that sometimes there are just gawkers. There are people who will just kind of look in on your life and go, oh, what a tragedy. How sad. Can I just encourage you? Be gracious even with gawkers. Be gracious with your enemies. Be gracious with gawkers. Be gracious with your friends who say the exact wrong thing. John has been so gracious. I guarantee you, over the years, being in his home, being in hospitals, being in places, I guarantee you I've said the wrong thing. John has never uttered a word of anything but gracious reception, being thankful that a friend came to be with him. Let me invite the the band to come up, and Rob specifically. Church body, let me just say this. If we are unpracticed in how to minister to the sorrowful, it is not for lack of sorry people in our midst. It is quite potentially a lack 
of us being yielded to the leading of Jesus. Psalm 34, 18 was mentioned twice in Ben's sermon last week. I'll mention it again. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you are near Jesus, you will be near the crushed. You'll be called to the brokenhearted. Can we find God on the mountaintop? Yes. We also find Him in hospital rooms and in quiet moments. I've asked Rob to share just a little bit about how God's been faithful and how he's been faithful um, in, in his story of, of losing his wife. Um, well, on February 19th, 1997, um, I was awakened early in the morning by a phone call that um, my wife had been killed in a car accident. And um, I was uh, already going through the grieving process of a divorce um, and was trying to recover from that when that happened. God remained faithful during that time, but if you had asked me that day or told me that day that I would be standing up here today telling you my story with this beautiful, happy ending that I have, uh, I would not have believed you. The pain was so deep and uh, the loss was so um, dramatic that I, I would not have been able to conceive what God has done for me. He's been faithful and I must admit that there were um, many days that I was not faithful to him. After she died, I went through a series of um, uh, bad choices, I guess we'd call them. And, uh, but yet God kept pulling me back. There's a passage in Ephesians 3. I, I often remind people um, to go there and read it for themselves. What it talks about is the, the depths of God's love, the enormous love of God. And um, how he's able to do more than we can ever imagine. And I couldn't imagine life going on for me. I couldn't imagine a, a beautiful wife and three um, great kids, a business, and um, a story that continues to just be amazing. God did that. And um, this song is going to sing that. Mm -hmm. 